Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Yeah, have an extra hour of sleep, yes? Thumbs up, thumbs down. How many of you, you want to get up really early? You just like that. Thank you, Vic. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand if you, you, I mean, although I will I won't point them out, but there were multiple people here early. <laughs> yeah, uh, so my apologies. So tomorrow you can get the benefit of that. Um, the good, oop, this, is, this is the good one. It's the one on the, uh, on the other side when we go back. If we ever go back, who knows if we're ever going back? Does anybody know what the government's doing? Like, we, are, we, are we doing this or are we not doing this? Like, just, I got to know. You know, are we in or are we out? So, anyway, congratulations. We got an extra hour. Um, but I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. To Daniel chapter 4. And the past few weeks we've been in a series talking about culture. Culture, right? Uh, culture is what we make of the world. That's what we said. That's the definition. Culture is what we make of the world, both with our hands, with, right, with, with, with the work of our, of our lives. It's what we make of the world. So whatever you were doing for your job this week, that's all part of culture. You're creating culture, right? And culture is also what we make of the world, meaning in our mind, thoughts, ideas. What do you make of that? What do you think about that? It's what we make of the world. It's what we do with our lives. This is election week. Woohoo! That means on Wednesday, the yard signs go away. Woo! Yeah! All right, there you go. That's something to be good at. But, but let me tell you, elections are a highly cultural event. I mean, highly cultural event. Democracy is cultural, right? Not every, not every culture is democratic. Uh, there are many cultures where the idea of everybody having a say is like, huh? Are you, wait, you get a say? No, 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 we don't all get a say. See, this is it's a unique cultural dynamic in a democratic society. The expectation that your opinion on what the government should do matters, that's cultural. Because there are plenty of governments around the world that don't care what your opinion is of what they are doing. Um, there's so much about culture that surrounds Election Day. We're swimming in culture uh, from the lawn signs, right? The lawn signs that are peppering the roadway, that is culture. You understand? That's a creation of culture. Of us, that's something we've made of the world with our hands, but it's something we've made the idea that when you see that sign, you're more likely to vote for that candidate. That's, a, that's an idea, a concept of culture. So you've got that. You've got the experience at the polling station. You know you've got to walk in, right, and, uh, and, and register and get in line. To so the I voted stickers. I voted stickers. I vote, right? Or, or, I, or the little thing you put on Facebook. It says, yes, I voted today, right? That's all culture. That's all a creation of something that we've done to say, hey, this is how we participate in the society and the ideas and the things that we have made of the world. Voting is a privilege reserved for citizens who are of age, who have registered to vote. They've done all the things that culture says you must do. You have to register. Then you have to show up. You have to go through the ceremony of giving your name. No license. Don't worry about that. We don't check that. You just need to give your name at the voting things. I've always think that's strange. Like, it's whatever. I, 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 what you have to do to rent a car and what you have to do to vote, which is more important? I'm just saying. They need, like, it's everything, you know. But you give your name, and then you give the ballots. This is all culture. It used to be electronic. We'd walk in, we, we've, you know, you'd push a button. That's back in the olden days. Now they give us a Sharpie and a piece of paper because we're much more advanced. 
And that's how we've gone on ballots. I'm not making any commentary on election processes. Um, but it's all a cultural experience. And then if, whether, if you care, you're watching the results online, right? Or you're checking the, checking the polls, things like that, seeing what's happening. Um, it's a thoroughly cultural experience. And here's what happens when we vote. What we're doing is we're, we're hoping and expecting to affect culture. We vote on things that we think should change about culture, about things that need to, that need to adapt, like there are problem areas of culture, things that we are concerned about. And we say, if I vote, I hope to influence culture by participating in culture to create different culture. There's layers and layers to this. How you vote is a product of culture. It's a product of how you were raised and uh, what you've been exposed to. Perhaps you vote for a certain party because your parents did. Perhaps you, you don't vote for a certain party because your parents did, right? That's, that's the way you go. Everything you think and everything we do is influenced by culture. What the people around you value has an impact on what you value. What the people, doesn't mean it determines it, but it impacts it, it influences it. What, what the people around you think influences what you think, how you respond to that. We're all products of culture. We're not just, but it shapes, it forms. We think about things because somebody else says it, and then it, oh, I didn't think about that, and we consider all of this. Yesterday, I watched the Robbinsville High School boys soccer team uh, Central Jersey championship game against Steinert, okay, and immediately the room just divided, okay? We've got all the Robbinsville versus the Hamilton, right? That's exactly what was happening on the field. One side, uh, the Robbinsville side was wearing black, and the, the Steiner side was wearing white, right? And so you've got black and white, although the players were wearing red and white so, and green. It didn't, I don't know. But, um, but two sides, and it's very clear. When one side would cheer, the other side would groan. And then, and then vice versa, when, when they would groan, you know, the other side would cheer. And there's, there, there's student sections in Robbinsville, they call it the flock, because they're the Robbinsville Raisin, Ravens, and, the, and the, the flock is is chanting things over at the Steiner side, and, and the Steiner side is chanting things back, and they're, they're going back and forth, and there's this constant thing. That's all culture. That's all part of, that's a cultural creation. You want, you want culture, go to the South and... Talk about Friday Night Lights. You want to experience culture. Uh, high school football in the South. There are high schools that have multi-million dollar football stadiums. The kids can't read, but they know how to play football. <laughs> they, can, they can run, a, a, you know, the, it's, okay, again, no commentary. But what's interesting about the soccer game is that these are people that live literally miles apart just miles apart. We're in the same part of the world at the same time in history, experiencing very similar things, raising children in a similar culture at the same, so these are parents at really the same, you know, station of life, all together in the same place, but having completely different experiences in that game because of culture, right? Because of, of what they're hoping for and things like that. And there's people yelling at the refs. Um, that's part of culture. We've created that. Yes, we've created that. The folks I was sitting next to are, are from Robbinsville, uh, but they had a nephew on the team for Steinert. Conflicted <laughs> people, like, mm, yes, ooh, yes, no, oh, you know, like, how do I cheer? Like, going, you know, like they're, on, they're definitely on the Robbinsville side, but, you know, um, having such different experiences because of culture. It's so diverse. It's so impactful. It affects so much how we experience life. And just for the record, uh, Robbinsville won.
So, uh, you know, congratulations to the Robbinsville High School. It was a very exciting game, very even match. Went to overtime, then extra overtime, and then to penalty kicks, and it came down to the goalie from Robbinsville blocking a penalty kick, very much like their championship game last year where they won the state championship. So two more games, and Robbinsville could be repeat state champions. So pretty cool to watch. If you want to watch Wednesday night, the game will be at the high school. All right. I, I, I don't even have anybody on the team. <laughs> We're just saying it. Ethan played last year, but nobody this year. Anyway, in regards to our journey of faith, we've been exploring how we as followers of Jesus should respond to the culture that we find ourselves in. That's what we've been talking about. When we find ourselves wrapped in this culture, how do we react to that? There are parts of culture, we've said, that we clearly need to resist. There are, parts of, there are elements of culture, they, they defile us. Right? There's something about culture that they, they, there's something wrong, and it, and it corrupts and it damages us. They, they may be acceptable to the people around us, but for whatever reason, there's something inside us that says, no, that's no good for you. And we have to say, I cannot participate in that element of culture that would violate something inside us. It would do damage to our soul. And it's on us to listen to the Holy Spirit, to say, give me wisdom to know what parts of culture I consume and what parts I need to reject. Where, where is this not good for me? We looked at Daniel's life and how Daniel said, there were, some of these things are just not good for me. These are okay, but that's not good for me. And then second, that there are also parts of culture. Pastor Vic preached this message last week. Uh, that we clearly need to engage, that God has actually precisely put us there to engage those parts of culture. God has given us skills and abilities, not just to navigate culture, but to leverage those skills and abilities to bring about good through culture, that God actually qualifies us and gives us competencies within culture so that we can make a difference and be a blessing, that we've been planted here not just to critique culture, not just to criticize it, to say, oh, this is bad, to oppose it, to say, this world is trash, everybody's terrible, you're all horrible, we should all be like Jesus. Like, Jesus was kind of in the culture. He was a carpenter. He did things. He lived there. He ate food, real food, right? He did all this kind of stuff. There are parts of culture that are good and that we need to engage those things. And our responsibility as followers of Jesus is simply to figure out what are the good parts and what are the bad parts? And we need to stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we know what's good and what's not. And when we say it like that, it sounds pretty simple and pretty doable, right? You're like, okay, I got it. I got it. I got to figure it out. I totally understand culture. I'm good. I, I go out there and I know how to do this. Um, very simple. Uh, as we all know, that simple isn't always easy. Just because something is clear doesn't mean it's easy to do. And sometimes as we walk through life and we encounter elements of culture, even though we know what is good and right and what is right and wrong, sometimes we just don't want to do what we think is right. Sometimes we want to experience the parts of culture that we know are no good for us. Something about the culture appeals to us. It's, it's really, really strong, and we go, I just want to do that. I want to try that. I just want to indulge in it. I want to feel what that feels. I want, to, I, want to, I want to see what that is like. And you know what happens, though? We know it's wrong. We do it anyway. We indulge and we jump in. Um, we don't need examples of this. I don't need to tell you about this. But I'm going to list them anyway. Um, you know it's wrong to hold a grudge because we shouldn't hold grudges. But everybody else around me seems to do that. They seem to keep a list. They seem to, they seem to have a people on there. You know, okay, these are the toxic people. I can give you my list of toxic people. You have your list. And so since everybody else is doing it, you know, it's okay. I don't do it a lot, but I can do it a little bit. We know we shouldn't, but you know it's wrong to lie about sick days, but everybody else at work seems to get away with it. So if I just, it's just, it's just sort of the culture here. 
We just say, I'm taking a sick day when we know we're not sick. But it's just a cultural thing. Everybody else is doing it. Like, uh, you know, just bend the rules just a little bit, right? Okay, nobody does that. I know none of you do that. Um, but sometimes other people do things that they know are wrong. So let's talk about them. Let's talk about them. When, hypothetically, we do things that allow culture to, to violate us, to do things that distance us from God, when we allow what is acceptable around us to lead us away from the one who loves us, what do we do then? What do we do when we find ourselves doing things that we know are culturally not right? We know it, but we're doing it anyway. And we're going to consider today three stories of people who did just that. And we're going to talk about something I'm calling the paradox of culture. The paradox of culture. Uh, to be honest, this whole series comes from a book. I can tell you about the book later if you'd like to read it. I, I doubt anybody in the room will read it, but if you'd like to, you're more than welcome. It's called Christ and Culture by a guy named Richard Niebuhr. Uh, it's, it's old, it's hard to read, very challenging, but it was uh, really, really formative to helping come with some of these ideas. So if you'd like to read it, you can, you can go check that book out. But we're going to talk about the paradox of culture because in it we're going to see how good God really is. I, that's my hope for today is that we'll walk away going, man, God's really good. Really, really good. Better than I know. So in the story of Daniel's life, you were in Daniel there, if you, if you turn in your Bibles, I'll read it too. But he's a young Jewish man, if you don't know. Uh, being held captive in Babylon, okay, so he's, he, they, they've been exiled from their lands, Babylon took, conquered their people, so now he's in Babylon, he's in the service of the king, um, in the king's court, he's trained, and uh, one night the king has a dream, and he doesn't know what it means, and it's like disturbing, you ever have a disturbing dream? Well, this was one of those things he was like, I don't like that, um, and he doesn't know what it means, and so he gets all his wise men, says, tell me what the dream means, nobody can do it, Daniel comes in, and Daniel is able to interpret the dream, but he's hesitant to do it because he knows that it's going to foretell that the king is going to lose his mind, be driven from society, and only be restored when he learned that God truly rules over all things. And he's like, I don't, it's not really something you tell the king of Babylon. Hey, you're going to lose your mind, and God's just going to, you know, punish you, um, and you're just going to lose it all. Like, I, dude, I'm already a slave here. Like, I don't really, but, but. Daniel does. Eventually, he says, king, I don't want to tell you what I'm, what I'm, but I might as well, so let me tell you. And he says, here's the deal. I'm going to warn you. He says, this is what God is saying, but if you humble yourself, this doesn't have to happen. He says, king, please don't do it. And so the king listens to Daniel. He says, okay, that's great. Thank you so much. And the king listens to Daniel for a little bit, for a little bit. And then it says, about 12 months later, the king is walking on, like, the, the roof of his palace in Babylon. He's looking out over this, I mean, city, and he's just soaking in the glory. Look what I have built with my hands. Look at all that I have done, right? He grows proud. And he takes credit for the splendor of Babylon. He denies that God had any role in this cultural creation, right? That culture was my doing. I created all this, and he takes credit for it. He takes, place for, he takes credit for God's role in it, and uh, the prophetic dream is fulfilled. We can read this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. So he has this thought. I did this. That same hour, it says, the judgment was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. <laughs> it's pretty funny if it's not sad. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. That's, some, that's, that's funny. That's a funny, like he's, now it's sad, sad, but f sad funny, sad funny. All right, 
The, king, <laughs> the king's pride in what he had made of the world with his hands, this culture, what he had made. He took pride in what he had made with his hands, and it affected what he made of the world with his mind. He said, I must have made this with my hands, which means I made this. And he began to think of himself in that way. And this pride, and he denies God. And in that moment, God said, I warned you about that. And he loses his mind. Now, had Nebuchadnezzar been a poor servant, if he had been just a poor man living as a servant somewhere, he may have never had this experience. Right? Like, like if you're not the king walking on, I don't know how many people are walking into their hut being like, look what I made. I got dirt floors, no running water. I'm killing it today. Like, he probably didn't have that experience. So it's likely that his extravagant wealth, his unchecked power, are the product of culture, right, led to his pride and downfall. It's highly likely that because of his position, because of what culture had given to him, that he's having this experience, that he was filled with pride. We know wealth and power aren't bad, but too much of them can easily corrupt and lead to pride. It's a familiar story in history. Somebody gets too much money, too much power, and they lose it. They start to just serve self. It's, it's common. It's, it's a dime a dozen story. So we can surely agree that extravagant wealth and power are bad elements of culture, right? That extravagant wealth and, and unchecked power, those are bad elements of culture. They are dangerous and lead us away from God. Except for the fact that that's not the end of the story. See, Daniel, the very next verse says this. After this time passed, and now this is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. I'm out of my mind, but after this time of, of you know, hair and claws and all this stuff, I looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned. And I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? He says, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom, listen, with even greater honor than before. Verse 37, he concludes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. See, in time, King Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. God restores his mind, and the illusion is no more. This painful experience had actually led him to truth. Think about this. Because of the pain, he comes out of it better than he went into it. He's more understanding the very thing that led to his separation from God was actually the thing that led him to God. That let's say he's a poor servant, not having this experience, but he also doesn't come out knowing any more about God. That the very place, the very thing that was his downfall, the thing that led to his separation from God was actually the thing that led him to God. Now, the king knew God in a way he had never known him before. See, here's the paradox of culture. That the very parts of culture that lead to our downfall can also be the part that God uses to wake us up. That the very things that allure and tempt us and draw us away from God, that they're no good for us, but that God can actually use that to bring us to him. God uses parts of culture that seem like they only have potential to separate us from him to bring us close to him. 
Let's fast forward now to his time of Jesus. While he's teaching, right? Jesus now go to the New Testament, all right, years, generations later, and now Jesus is teaching, and some religious leaders don't like it. They don't like what he's teaching. And they drag a woman before Jesus, and she had been caught in the act of adultery. I think I have a picture of this, if you can put that up. Um, it says, for reasons unknown to us, she had chosen to do something she knew was clearly sinful. We don't know. Don't know why. Don't know what happened, what led. We don't know any of the background. All we know is that this woman is dragged in before Jesus. She had chosen to do something she knew was clearly sinful. She had ignored what God said was good and right, and they caught her in the act. How they caught her in the act, you can, they probably, they were, they were hunting. They were hunting. They were looking to, to set Jesus up here. They didn't care about this woman at all because marriage and relationships, they were certainly cultural creations, yes. Relationships, marriage, all, it's all part of culture, as are the laws that govern them. Govern them. And adultery at that time, uh, I mean, a little less so now, was culturally unacceptable. Uh, still not acceptable. Um, but the religious laws were clear then that she deserved to be stoned to death. She had violated the terms of marriage. It was a clear violation of culturally acceptable relationships. So here's the thing. They, they, bring it, they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, here you go. Law says, culture says, she gets canceled. She needs to die. And Jesus says to them, you're right. The law does say that. The justice system says she should lose her life for this. You're absolutely right. Now I want to pause. Jesus had been preaching a message of forgiveness and grace, and these religious leaders couldn't wrap their head around it. Their law, their system was black and white. There was no room for forgiveness and grace. It was you do the crime, you do the time. That's it. Black and white. They were seeking to force Jesus to adapt to their culture, to a cultural creation of God himself through the law. Listen, God created this law. God created this culture of the law. So surely Jesus was going to submit to a cultural system God had given. The law was God-given, which means it was a creation of God. Jesus has to submit to God. There's no way around this. You have to acknowledge she deserves to die. Culture demands it. God demands it. Jesus, there's no way out. He knows it. He knows the law. He has no interest in violating the law. But what Jesus says next is so brilliant, so paradoxical, so unexpected that I don't think we have really scratched the surface of the power of what Jesus did right here. We've been talking about this for years. The church has talked about this for years, and I don't think we've really tapped into what happened in this moment. He says this. He says, you're right. She should die. So whoever has sinned and whoever is perfect, you get to throw the first stone. See, the justice system of the law was a cultural creation of God to show us that he demands perfection. That says, you want to be around me? You, you, you got to be perfect. I, I demand, remember the, the, the law is absolute holiness. That's the, only, that's the rule. That's the, the rule. You've got to be perfect. To be in relationship with God, you have to be absolutely perfect. And the religious leaders were using that culture to crush people, to literally kill people, to say, hey, you follow the law or you're out. I condemn you. I kill you. And Jesus here doesn't do away with the justice system. He simply adds a cultural qualifier to it. He says the law demands perfection. Absolutely. The only thing I'm going to add is that the only people qualified to execute judgment from the law are those who are also perfect like the law that is perfect. 
The law is perfect, absolutely. It demands perfection. And the only people qualified to administer justice are those who are like, likewise perfect. So if you fit the qualifications of being perfect, then you get to administer the justice of the perfect law. If you are not perfect, that perfect law is not yours to, to dish out. You don't have permission. So if you have no sins, you get to throw the first stone. Guess who qualifies to throw stones? Only God. Jesus met a culture of condemnation with a culture of grace. They seem like a paradox, but in truth, they simply reveal God's goodness. He's the one who made them both. And then Jesus bends down and he writes something in the dust with his finger. We don't know what he writes. I wish I knew. I mean, it's like the mystery of mysteries. What was he writing? People have guessed. They've theorized, you know, like, what is, what is, I got to assume that it's better that we don't know. Because <laughs> God would have told us if we needed to know. We don't know what he wrote. All we know is that he wrote in the sand. And whatever he wrote in the sand or whatever had happened there, one by one, starting with the oldest, starting with the people who had lived the longest, who had had the most opportunity to make mistakes and do things that they knew were wrong, starting with the people that knew, were most aware of their imperfections, the oldest, it said, one by one, they walked away. Until, it says, Jesus looks up, stands up, and only the woman is left, humiliated, scarred, broken, ashamed. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and says, where are your accusers? Did anyone stay and throw a stone? Did anyone confuse you, con condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. Nobody stayed. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. That should have been a place of condemnation. A place of shame. A place of judgment. There are so many places that culture has created that are drowning people in shame and humiliation. There was a story from this past week. I read it in the news. I'll just share it carefully. Uh, there was a pastor in Alabama who was also the mayor of a town. And uh, somehow news came out that... Uh, Secretly, in his private life, he was uh, behaving as a transgender. And it, it, like, it was leaked somehow. And the police were called to do a wellness check on him. And they went to, went to find him. They saw him driving. They tried to pull him over. He stopped his truck on the side of the road and took out a gun and took his life. I believe that grieves God's heart that this person felt their only option was to take their life because shame drives us away. Culture has created these spaces that are places of shame and disgrace and dishonor till we just have no other hope. That was not a good situation. But God is the God who takes places of shame and he says, I am going to change this into a place of grace and mercy into a place where you feel loved. That woman was sitting there at probably the most shameful moment of her life, and instead of experiencing shame from culture weighing down on her, Jesus changed it and said, this very place that should have been 
A place of your deepest pain will now be a place of your greatest love. You will never forget that I loved you, that I said, I don't condemn you. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. The last example I want to draw your attention to, in the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect relationship with God, right? And there's, there's one simple premise for this relationship, one simple thing, and it's this. Um, just don't eat that. <laughs> you can have all of it, but just don't eat that. Just trust me. Trust me, you don't want to eat that. Everything else is yours. It's all for your good. Just don't eat that thing. And you know what? They did. For a little bit. For a little bit. And then eventually they ate what they shouldn't have. Food is part of culture. And they consumed a part of culture that they shouldn't have. And they knew it was wrong and they did it anyway. It was an act of disobedience. And it damaged their relationship with God. So what was their immediate response? What did they do immediately? If you know the story, it says they hid. They felt shame, and they hid. They fear God's condemnation, his punishment, and his judgment. Now they know they're naked. They're aware of their shame, and you know what God does next? You know what God does? The very first thing God does with them, he makes them clothes. They put clothes on them. It's your place of your shame. God says, I'll, I'll fix that. Clothes are culture. Come on, this is culture. God used culture to heal the same part of culture, the same person that culture also broke and led them away. From the beginning of human history, we've been getting culture wrong. And rather than abandoning us to our deserved punishment and leaving us to live apart from God, God keeps coming to us and meeting us in the place of brokenness. There are parts of culture that are good. There are parts of culture that are bad. We know that. But some days, we still do it anyway. And rather than abandoning us, God comes to find us. He says, I will find you in the place of your brokenness. And I will redeem you through the same cultural things that have the potential to corrupt you. I redeem that. The paradox of culture is that the parts that separate us the most from God are the very parts that God uses to bring us back to him. So what? So what? Thank you for this nice little journey through the Bible. Um, and what do we do now? Can I just share, when you awaken to the reality that you've done wrong, if there are parts in your life, no, I know nobody in here, but if you know somebody, pass this on to them. If you awaken to the reality that you've engaged in a part of culture that's no good and you know it, don't hide like Adam and Eve. Don't hide. Don't let shame keep you away from God. We do this. We avoid. We run. We feel like, God, God's not happy with me. He knows that I know that he knows that I know. And so we just start to, to avoid I tell you, don't hide. Secondly, look up. Like King Nebuchadnezzar. Time has gone on, and one day I come to my senses. And the first thing he says he did is he looked up to God of heaven and acknowledged, okay, God, you rule. You're good. 
You're the one who rules all this. It's not me. God, I acknowledge I'm going to look to you. No matter how long you've been away, look up. God is there loving you, waiting to restore you and to redeem you. Finally, count on grace. Count on grace. No one else on the earth has the right to condemn you. It's not our job. God didn't say go condemn the world. Christians, let me tell you, just go condemn everybody. Thank you. I just, you do it. You do, I, you, you do it. You do it better than me. I think some people read that. Nobody who throws rocks at you is sent by God. He looks at you in love and says, I don't condemn you. He doesn't say, it's okay what you did. He says, now go and sin no more. Because I'm not here to condemn you. The paradox of culture is that when we make a mess of the world, both with our hands and with our minds, he brings his grace to us right where we are. He doesn't leave us out there, out of our minds. He doesn't leave us in our place of shame. He doesn't let us just hide. He's going to come find us. He said, hey, haven't given up on you. Haven't given up on you. It's the paradox of culture that when the same culture that we use to violate our relationship with God, he works through it to bring us back to him. Even the most broken places of culture have the potential to be the very place God meets us and shows us his goodness. Don't hide. Look up.